1: In America last month, inflation hit a 40-year high of 8.6 percent. In response, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates in mid-June by three-quarters of a percentage point, a record in recent memory and the sharpest hike since 1994. Jerome Powell, the Fed's chair, was straight to the point.
2: Good afternoon. I will begin with one overarching message. We at the Fed understand the hardship that high inflation is causing.
1: A gallon of petrol now costs around $5. Grocery prices have increased by more than 10%.
2: Gas is up and food is up, which we're going to get down come hell or high water.
1: But when the Fed tightens so aggressively, history suggests America will be lucky to escape recession. This is The Economist Asks, I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how can governments fight inflation? It's not only America where hefty prices are hitting wallets. The same thing is happening in large parts of the world, and Europe is heavily affected. In Britain, inflation hit 9% this week, and trade unions are banging the drum. Everything's going up but our wages. Energy bills through the roof. Central bankers, such as Jerome Powell and Christine Lagarde, have a tightrope to cross, keeping inflation under control without triggering unemployment or debt crises.
0: High inflation is a major challenge for all of us. The governing council will make sure that inflation returns to our 2% target over the medium term. This week,
1: Powell admitted that a recession is not out of the question.
2: It's certainly a possibility. It's not our intended outcome at all, but it's certainly a possibility.
1: As the Fed battles inflation, there's been a knock-on effect on U.S. mortgage rates, approaching 6%, and the stock market is taking a hit too. My guest this week has strong opinions on all this and some possible remedies. He's the economist and author Paul Krugman. Krugman was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2008 for his work on international trade theory. He's now teaching at City University of New York. Paul Krugman, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Hi, good to be on.
1: And with me today also is Henry Kerr, The Economist's economics editor. Henry, very good to have you here.
0: Hi, Anne, good to be here.
1: Paul Krugman, we're going to dive straight in uh, on the situation with inflation, and particularly in the US, where on June the 15th, the Federal Reserve raised its main interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point to a range of between 1.5 and 1.75 percent, the biggest increase in nearly three decades. Annual inflation rate has surged to over 8 percent in May, a 40-year high. It's clearly a steep hike. Is the Fed doing the right things and is it doing enough to fight inflation?
2: I'm very supportive of the Fed tightening. I think it's doing enough. I'm actually a little concerned that it may be doing too much because uh, there's a, a lot of that high number, headline number on inflation is probably stuff that will go away. And it's, it's looking as if the economy is slowing. But uh, the basic Fed strategy seems to be the right thing to do right now. The U.S. economy is clearly running too hot and has to get cooler, and the Fed is well on its way to making that happen.
1: So you're broadly happy. You think that these big spikes we're seeing in America and elsewhere might be transitory. Henry was already looking like he wanted to come in Henry.
0: Well I was just going to say Paul if you've got core inflation at close to 5%, if we look at any of the standard sort of rules of thumb for setting monetary policy, even the sort of dovish rules that were around in the 2010s when rates are really low, they say your interest rates should be dramatically higher. So are we really still betting on inflation being transitory when we say that rates of less than 2% are enough to fight such a such a high inflation number?
2: Oh I would think it would be wrong for the Fed to stop here. Even I think that the rate needs to go up substantially from here, but everyone expects it to. The Fed has made it clear it's going to do successive steps. And if you look at long-term interest rates, which are fundamentally anticipating future Fed moves, they've risen a lot. The most important point of traction on the real economy is the mortgage interest rate. And mortgage interest rates have have already spiked to quite high levels, well over 5%. So we're we're talking about a situation where the current and anticipated course of monetary policy is quite strongly uh, leaning against inflation. So don't judge it by where the rate is right now. If the Fed were to announce, okay, that's it, then we would see kind of a panic uh, over inflation, but that's not what's happening.
1: I'm going to step back for a moment just so we can put a bit of a framework around this. And if we look back to 2021, many economists, including yourself, were arguing that inflation even then would be transitory. Do you think that a lot of economists got it wrong? And so what's the backdrop to that and why we seem to be in a completely different position now?
2: Well, I got it wrong. There are two different reasons for getting it wrong, uh, both of which I fell into. One of them is that events. Uh, I wasn't certainly betting on Putin invading Ukraine, but also beyond that, the I certainly, I don't think anybody fully anticipated just how much disruption there would be associated with coming out of a pandemic distorted economy. And so there's a lot of stuff in there. But on top of that, there's clearly a pretty strong underlying fundamental component to inflation, although that's more like probably three and a half to four percent rather than eight. And that represents uh, the economy seems to have a little bit less capacity than we thought. And demand has been stronger than I expected it to be. So we're, we're overheated to a degree that, that I didn't see coming.
0: There's a lot of fear out there that this inflationary mindset's gonna become entrenched in the economy, that the, the public's so aware of inflation now yeah. uh, that you've kind of let it out of the box. And uh, in some of the surveys that have hitherto been a point of comfort uh, for people like yourself and people at the Federal Reserve who said inflation should subside are showing that this sort of fear of longer term inflation uh, rising. So how worried are you about that?
2: Well, it's that is why the Fed needs to be proactive. Now, we need to be a little bit. One survey, the Michigan survey, has that that number has moved up in the last month and uh the there's another survey which arguably is at least as high or higher quality though the more recent vintage, which is the New York Fed survey, which doesn't show that rise, and market expectations of inflation haven't risen. So you don't want to uh go too far. Maybe those anchored expectations have have gotten unanchored, but there's really not there's not a whole lot of evidence for that right now. If you're telling a narrative that says that that the whole world thinks it's 1979 again, that's not what the data say.
1: You're citing 1979, the era of the former chairman Paul Volcker, 1979 uh, onwards. He was known as something of an inflation nutter. He relentlessly tightened monetary policy to curb inflation despite unemployment rising.
2: Yeah, what we're really worried about always, is inflation that feeds on itself. Uh, If we go back to the beginning of 1980, we were an economy in which everybody expected inflation to be 10% a year, basically in perpetuity. And Volcker set out to break that, and he did so with extremely tight monetary policy, sent the unemployment rate into double digits, and it came down pretty you know, slowly when all is said and done. We didn't get back to 1979 levels of unemployment until 1987, which is something uh, that has been forgotten. So this huge sustained bulge in unemployment, we're not in anything like that situation now. So this is doesn't look at all like a Paul Volcker moment. People are have not internalized the idea that we're going to have high inflation forever. And of course, the Fed's job is to bring inflation down before they start to internalize that.
1: So to be clear, you're pretty optimistic that the Fed can still avoid a recession resulting from either misjudging responses to what we're seeing in terms of these higher interest rates and that this pressure isn't going to, to go fully toxic, to put it, in fluent generalese.
2: Yeah, there are recessions and there are recessions. Is it possible that we will have a period in which the economy, in which GDP growth is negative for a little period of time? Uh, possible, quite possible. Uh, is it possible that we'll have a period in which GDP grows, but slowly enough that the unemployment rate rises, almost surely very hard to tell the story in which we get inflation down without that happening. But there's a huge difference between that, and it really hardly matters whether it's technically a recession or not, there's a huge difference between a slowdown for a little while as the economy cools off and something like that enormous wrenching uh, you know, five-year period of extremely high unemployment that it took to bring inflation down in the 1980s.
0: You don't agree with what Larry Summers has, has just said, which is that it will take five years, as you say, five years of unemployment above 5% yeah. to contain inflation.
2: According to what I just saw on Twitter, Larry himself doesn't exactly agree with Larry Summers. has <laughs> just said that it was it was an intellectual exercise rather than a prediction. But no, I definitely don't, whether it's Larry or not, I, I don't agree that we're in that situation. We're, there, there's still a world of difference between the... Expectational landscape right now, where for the most part people still do believe that inflation is going to come down. They've been shaken a little bit by events, but we have not. We're not coming off a, a decade where inflation was persistently ever rising. We're not in a situation where people are expecting ten percent inflation as far as the eye can see, which is in fact what surveys did show in 1980. So we don't need a Volker type. punish the economy story.
0: A big part of what the Fed's been saying is that as it raises interest rates, it won't have to turf anyone out of a job, or at least it won't have to raise the unemployment rate too much because it can just bring down the number of job openings at the economy. And a lot of people have said that's very optimistic. You said the unemployment rate will have to rise. Are you sceptical about what the Fed's saying there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was very sceptical of what the Fed was saying until the most recent meeting. Uh, The previous Fed projections, which were inflation coming down without any rise in the unemployment rate didn't look even for a big monetary dove like me, that did not look reasonable. Uh, some rise in the unemployment rate seems to be almost inevitable as part of this story. The Fed is saying a modest rise, around a half-point rise in the unemployment rate, which is possible and might actually be enough. I don't think it's going to take a huge rise in the unemployment rate to, to bring inflation back down to acceptable levels. What I do worry about is whether the Fed has sufficiently good control to pull that off. It's very tricky to get yourself from, let's say, 3.5% underlying inflation to 2% underlying inflation without kind of overdoing it along the way and producing some unnecessary bulge in unemployment. So I think that the there exists a Goldilocks path where we do get the inflation down without a really major uh, rise in unemployment. There's certainly a high risk that That the Fed, I'm mixing metaphors enormously here, but that the Fed slams on the brakes too hard. But, you know, none of this, again, there's an enormous difference between, oops, the Fed bobbled it a bit and the unemployment rate went up briefly to 4.3% and going through uh, five years of 5% unemployment, which is what, uh, at least what Larry Summers was quoted as saying.
1: I was about to say I'm looking forward to seeing, oops, the Fed bobbled it uh, as part of an official press release one day. Um, let us turn perhaps to, to Europe and have a look at the euro area and and the UK. Inflation is running at similarly high rates. Doesn't that suggest that the key drivers of this are actually more global than country specific. Uh, The pandemic, China's zero Covid lockdowns, uh, policies which have had a a bad backwash in terms of, of economic output and the war in Ukraine. How significant do you think these bigger geopolitical factors might be?
2: Well, they're obviously huge. Look, even for the U.S., what we think is that underlying inflation is maybe three and a half or four. So even for the U.S., most of what's going on is these external shocks, which are affecting everybody. In the case of Europe, uh, underlying inflation looks probably uh, lower than the U.S. So that even more of the inflation is external stuff. Europe is just more exposed to Uh, disruption of Russian natural gas supplies and that sort of thing than the U.S. is.
0: Another problem you have in Europe specifically is that as the European Central Bank raises rates to fight inflation, that makes it more expensive for countries that have a lot of government debt. There are knock-on consequences for indebted countries such as Italy, which has been dealing with bigger bond spreads, leading the ECB to, to announce that it's planning measures to bring those spreads down. How worried are you about higher interest rates in Europe imperiling the eurozone and leading to a, a rerun of the sovereign debt crisis?
2: Well, in 2012, the spreads, you know, interest rates on Italian, Portuguese, Spanish debt were extremely high. And it really looked as if the eurozone was just going to be blown apart by those interest rate spreads but there were a few people who were saying no actually the debt level isn't really that bad it's a liquidity crisis and Maria Draghi said three words "Uh, whatever it takes we will do whatever it takes to save the euro which markets interpreted as a statement that if necessary the ECB would buy Spanish and Portuguese debt Uh, to make sure that they had the cash on hand. Simply saying that produced a miraculous, almost instantaneous collapse in the spreads and everything calmed down. We're probably in the same situation now. None of these countries look fundamentally insolvent. Certainly not Spain or Portugal, probably not even Italy. So if we're seeing a rise in spreads, it's again, it's fears more of a, a cash crunch than it is fundamental concerns about solvency. And once again, the ECB has the tools, has the power. Uh, Does it have the political capability? I mean, in in a way, the the miracle of 2012 had a lot to do with the extraordinary political as well as analytical skills of Mario Draghi. And does Christine Lagarde have those skills? She's, She's impressive too, but does she have those skills in sufficient measure? But that's the issue.
1: I would like to ask you about that interplay between politics uh, and uh, big economic events. Um, I think you've just been in, in Europe recently, as have I. When we're talking about something like that, that interdependence, but sometimes fraught relationship between the ECB and the big European governments between Germany and France. Do you see the political response being different, given that politics in many places has become much more fractious, three-way coalition in Germany, difficult position for a government in Paris, to actually get to grips with this in the same way that it was able to do in previous years in difficult times or indeed crisis?
2: Well, it's a bit paradoxical because in some ways, weak European governments actually may be helpful here. The big concern for a a rescue operation, for a, another jockey-type intervention to prevent a, a spreads crisis in southern Europe. The big concern would be that, that stern German fiscal rectitude types would step in and stop him from doing it. Of course, in this case, stop Christine Lagarde from doing it. And the fact that Germany is actually looking a little bit wobbly and fragmented Uh, It's actually probably a good thing because the ECB probably has the freedom of action to do what it wants. The euro was not saved by determined, decisive action by European governments. The, The euro was saved by decisive, determined action by technocrats at the European Central Bank with the governments, to everybody's surprise, getting out of their way. And that's what we hope will happen again.
0: Is there not a bit of a difference from 2012 in that the ECB could be dealing with a, with a bad inflation problem now? And so if you get to a point where the ECB has to raise rates sufficiently, then never mind the spread, you could just have a high enough interest rate to imperil Italy. And does, doesn't that in effect set a kind of cap on how high the ECB could raise interest rates if it needed to? Because it would create a problem that would, would go beyond a cash crunch and would, and would become a solvency thing.
2: There is some issue, although we need to remember that we're starting from incredibly low interest rates. So even a a quite large tightening by the ECB still leaves Europe a very low interest rate environment, much more so than was the case 10 years ago.
1: I'm going to go a bit broader now and and look at some philosophical questions perhaps around the economics of these very turbulent times we're living through. And Paul, I, I wanted to turn to where the left goes in terms of economic policy, given that we now have this strong inflationary environment in so many countries. One thing that a non-specialist would have picked up on is perhaps over the last decade or so, that there was a strong argument low interest rates would make it desirable for governments to keep on running bigger budget deficits. I think you were Uh, broadly on that side of the argument and pretty vocal about it. Well, rates are rising rapidly now. Is it time to jettison that sort of thinking? Should governments be starting to tighten their belts?
2: No. What we're looking at right now is a very special constellation of events. It's the combination of this extraordinary amount of the COVID relief, which was a really temporary big spending thing, and these various shocks to the global economy coming out of both COVID and and the war in Ukraine but if you actually ask what will the world look like once we get past all of that all of the things that led us to be a a world of low interest rates basically too much savings with all dressed up with nowhere to go and so hence very low interest rates all of those forces are still with us the demography very slow or negative growth in in working age population, that is going to be an even stronger force looking forward than it has been. Uh, So I think that the world in 2024 and 2025 is going to look a lot like the world in 2019, maybe even more so.
0: Paul's definitely right on the savings point. We've written about how the, the savings doesn't look like it's going to go away. But I suppose that the countervailing force that you have there is the amazing pressure that is being placed on government budgets uh, in terms of their ageing and age-related expenditures, in terms of the green transition, in terms of increased defence spending now given the war in Ukraine. And I suppose if we've learnt something over the past year. It's the efficacy of fiscal stimulus at raising inflation in in some circumstances and bringing about higher rates. Do you think even if the savings are still there, that the pressure to to borrow from governments means that actually you might get a bit of a tug of war, perhaps, between fiscal policy and monetary policy, with rates going up to fight inflation, but fiscal policy running quite loose?
2: Well, the thing about the kind of fiscal stimulus that we were all talking about, you know, pre-COVID, we're talking about a few percent of GDP, nothing like you know, the twenty 2020, twenty 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 one enormous budget deficits, uh, certainly in the u s those were far beyond what any of us were you know calling for as a sustained policy. those were a reaction to extraordinary events and the fact that those budget deficits appear to have produced inflation is really telling you very little about what happens if you go back to running low single digit percent of GDP budget deficits to invest in the green transition, which is really what we had more in mind.
0: Do you think that there's a danger that the political consequences of higher inflation will be a backlash against the kind of more expansive government, more expansive fiscal stimulus and a downturn that you've been advocating for a, for a long time? Part of the warnings about inflation that I, I definitely remember Larry Summers making was that, that it might lead to such a backlash. And one thing we've definitely learned that inflation is really unpopular.
2: Yeah, I don't think uh, it's a risk. I think it's a reality. It has happened. It's going to take uh, several years of getting inflation down and demonstrating once again that uh, we don't have to balance the budget to have price stability before we can get back to having a, a rational discussion about the role of government investment. So, no, we, we're paying a price now. A lot of that probably is not actually because of the stimulus. If you I, if you look at the U.S. political debate, you certainly look at what Republicans are on. It's all about gasoline prices. And if there's one thing that you really cannot blame on stimulus or on Joe Biden or on liberalism or anything, it is gasoline prices. It's the it's the one thing that is is the most global price issue largely unaffected by fiscal or monetary policy, but that it's also very salient. And so the public looks at gasoline prices and says, oh, big government or something. And that's wrong. But as the old saying goes, if you're arguing, you're losing. So it is a problem.
1: (laughs) If you're arguing, you're losing, except on a podcast where it's the the meat and drink. So I would like to ask you both, really, there's one view that says that wages for low-paying jobs have been stagnant for decades in the US. There's wage pressure in the UK. We're actually talking to you in the middle of, uh, of strikes as unions state uh, claim and take industrial action with that in mind. Do either of you see this as a moment of correction that could actually drive up living standards? Or are we just looking to a world in which any gains that we might get will be offset by rising prices? I might actually start with my Colin, get the economist's view on that and then put it to Paul to finish.
0: Well, it's really interesting because a big part of the economic debate in the late 2010s was whether you would get sustained gains for workers by running the economy hot. And what's happened during the current instance of high inflation is that real wages have lagged. And I think that's somewhat undermined this idea that, that you could really boost workers' share of the economic pie through a cyclical monetary policy. But I'm, I'm very in, interested to hear what Paul has to say about that.
2: Yeah. So if you look within the workforce, we've had much bigger wage gains at the bottom than at the top. In terms of who's been getting the biggest wage increases, it has been low-paid workers. So the tight labor market actually has been an equalizing force within the labor market. All of this overshadowed by the big rises in energy and food prices, which mean that real wages are down even at the bottom. But look, suppose that Goldilocks does, in fact, arrive, which is a a real possibility, Uh, not high confidence, but we could do it. It could be that a year from now, the U.S. will be sitting with slightly higher unemployment than it has now, but still a, a pretty satisfactory unemployment rate by historical standards, inflation having come way down, both because the shocks from energy and all that are over and because the supply chain issues have gotten themselves unkinked. And we'll end up with a lot of equalization, with a more equal wage distribution than we had before. And if we look at that, it will, we'll say that, hey, Taking the perspective of a few years, that was actually a pretty successful economic policy. We, we did great things for the U.S. economy. There was some upsetting inflation along the way, but that was just an episode. Now, probably politically, we will get no credit for that. If we end up with an economy which is actually full employment, lower inequality, lots more opportunity, all at the price of 18 months of elevated inflation... That's a huge win for the general welfare of the public and probably a huge loser politically.
0: Well, Paul, we'll have to get you back on in a a year to 18 months' time to see whether that has in fact transpired or whether we're still stuck in this uh, nasty inflationary world.
2: Indeed. We'll find out. uh, I could say I can't wait, but actually (laughs) I'm I'm not looking forward to living through the next 18 months, even though I'm personally doing fine.
1: Well, Paul Krugman, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show today. Thanks. It's been fun.
0: Thanks very much, Paul.
1: And do let us know what you think. Is the Fed doing enough to fight inflation? If we were to look forward around 18 months, do you think this inflation spike will be behind us or a longer haul? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. And don't miss out on our sister podcast, Money Talks, which this week looks at whether or not rising rates could cause another housing market crash. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. But the only way to gain access to everything we do is, you guessed it, become a subscriber. Our listeners can take advantage of a special introductory offer. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. You can find that link in the show notes. My producers this week were Julia Johnson and Alicia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling Condon, and the executive producer, Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
2: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse?